All right, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Seacoast, everyone. If we haven't met, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. My name is Dominic. Uh, great to see you. If you have a paper or a pixel, would you turn to the book of John, chapter 3? We will find ourselves in there this morning. And uh, as we continue this series, this week I was thinking of, uh, as a dad, I'm seeing these marked moments of new in my life. I'm teaching my son to drive, so pray for me. Um, he's doing incredible, but it's nerve-wracking. And uh, I'm trying my best to encourage and not freak out. Um, but as I'm watching him drive, yesterday we were driving throughout the community and had him go into a gas station and fill up gas and do it all on his own and drive to the mall and behind all these bike riders. And, and so just get all these different scenarios. And he's asking questions about signs and practices. And I realized like, oh, what I thought was commonplace, I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know the last time I actually read like the driver's manual to something. It's been a long time. And so I'm learning this newness of watching him discover it for the, the first time. He's also trying out for, to be a firefighter explorer, and so we were ironing his shirt and showing him how to get a suit ready and to tie a tie and polish his shoes, and we wrote a resume, and I've written dozens of resumes and read hundreds of people's resumes, and so it's learning to do that and how to do that for a high school student who's never had a job. And it's been a long time since I've been a high school student without a job, and so I'm learning. And I share these moments of discovery that I'm seeing newness because as we look at John chapter 3 this morning, it's perhaps arguably one of the most popular passages of Scripture. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As a kid, I would watch sporting events and there was a dude with a rainbow fro and a sign saying John 3.16. A couple of nods from there are coming. Got parodied in The Simpsons, a cartoon I don't recommend, but I watched as a kid, and there was a rainbow guy with 316 in there. There was a wrestler, Steve Austin, and he had Austin 316, and it was just, it was commonplace. It was common in culture to see this 316 around. And I have to confess that in all my years of study, I mean, I remember being an undergrad, and I had a, a, a class in John, and we read John 21 times in three weeks. And I got to tell you that I don't find myself in John chapter 3 in my own devotions very often. Because if I have full confession, I go, I know that already. And there's good in that, but what else? And I want to just confess that in study this week, I was floored. As I was sharing it with my wife last night, we both teared up in bed just thinking about, wow, what a powerful message that we get to go through together as a family of God. And so what I'd ask you is that if this is the first time you've heard that, you would lean in and go, what the heck is this all about? And you're welcome to do that. And for those who have followed Jesus for a long time, that you'd lean in, that it wouldn't be commonplace, but there might be new discoveries for you this morning. There might be something that the Spirit of God wants to say to you anew and afresh in a new way this morning. I hope that we can immerse ourselves in the story of this dialogue of Jesus and Nicodemus. And you would start asking questions it might not even be something I say, but you would ask questions of, Lord, what do you have for me in this? How am I like Nicodemus in this? What truth is Jesus saying that I need to explore this morning? And we'll do that together as a family. Can we do that? So as you're in John chapter 3, paper or pixel, let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, thank you for what's already happened in this place. As we've come this morning, maybe begrudgingly or maybe not sure how we found ourselves this morning. Maybe we thought we would do something else besides be here, but we're here now. 
And I just ask that you do only what you can this morning. As we sung about you, that by grace we've been saved and, and that you're the vision of life. May we set our sights on you this morning. As we study scripture and allow it to study us, may we just be wonderful students of you. May we be pleasantly surprised by what you have to say to this account of Nicodemus, but now to us 2,000 years later. God, would you change the direction of some of our destinies this morning? Would you change the trajectory of maybe ways that we've been going and lead us back into paths that are right? May you reset what's broken and bring hope where there is no hope. And would you speak to us, God? Would we be moved by your spirit, not through clever words or storytelling, but purely by you? And so have your way in this place, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. John chapter three, here we go. By the way, just a warning, we're gonna read like 50 scriptures today. Great, and somebody in first service was like, what? And I was like, I know, crazy, we're a church and we're gonna read the Bible, it's awesome. Let's do it. John, chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Everybody say Nicodemus. Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is a transitory passage. Chapter two, you will remember if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, there's been this theme of cleansing and there's a new theme of cleansing gonna happen in chapter three. We see these cleansing uh, tools that water is turned into wine in them and then we see a cleansing of the temple last week of just the flipping over the tables and cleaning his father's house. And at the end of chapter two, the last two verses, we see that Jesus isn't really pleased with his welcome there. And that people are following him but, and, and trusting, not trusting him, but just following him and saying, there's something happening over here because he's doing all these signs. In the last verse of chapter two, it says that Jesus is, recognizes what's going on in these hearts and he doesn't uh, accept the praise of them. He's not putting all his stock in what they think about him at this moment. He's secure in who he is. And such a person is Nicodemus now meeting Jesus in chapter three. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and Pharisees get a, a little bit of a bad rap. Dave Nichols, if you're here, you were, emailed me a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Pharisees, and it made me study the Pharisees more just to make sure that I'm painting an accurate picture of them, and I'm trying to break up with the scene in The Chosen, if you've ever watched the scene in The Chosen. The Pharisees were the largest and most powerful group of people in the Jewish society. They oversaw all of the synagogue teaching, and they set much of the course of action for how society interfaced with one another in the Jewish society. They were the ones who created the oral tradition of law. And so they loved both keeping oral and written tradition. In the best sense, there were curious followers of Yahweh, trying to stray true to what he was about. They were actually progressives of the day. They were the most open out of all the Jewish leaders to make sure that they were adapting to new situations and ideas and trying to modify and create new law that would fit in line with the heart of God to follow. 
They were also missionaries. They were really active about getting the Gentiles to become born again. You'll see that sign here in a minute. Born again into the Jewish faith. And here is the leader of all leaders in that group. Meeting with Jesus. And he comes to Jesus, the teacher of Israel comes to Jesus by night. And we don't know why by night. Some speculate maybe it's this, you know, hidden covert operation, uh, maybe to trap and ensnare him in the future. Maybe he's shameful of being seen by others, but curious of what he's been seeing with all these healings, and so wants to meet Jesus for himself and find out who this man is. But he gives Jesus the title of honor, and he says, Rabbi. And Rabbi is a big deal. Rabbi would mean that you are a student enough of law and scripture that you could then become the student who now becomes the teacher. And you could rule and reign, and and for them, again, levels of prestige and wealth and honor and greeted in the streets of, wow, Rabbi, how are you? Great to see you. You get to do the princess wave to everybody in society. and, And yet Jesus is anything but the normal rabbi. By all accounts, he's unschooled. We can't point to the rabbi who was the pedigree that he followed up throughout the ranks. Quite the opposite, he's a a carpenter from Nazareth, and what good can come from Nazareth? And he's a disruptive figure, to say the least. And yet, the teacher of teachers, the Pharisee, the largest group, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, sits and says, Rabbi, and gives him a title of honor. He says, we see that you're a teacher and that what you're doing is from God. Quite the contrast of what we'll see a couple chapters later where the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing the work by being empowered by Satan himself. But at this moment, the Pharisees aren't opposed to him. They're the progressives wondering what's happening and ooh, there's this new thing, what's going on? Clearly it's the work of God. It's a big deal, to say the least, that the Pharisee of all Pharisees is sitting with Jesus and calls him rabbi. Verse 3. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, say born again, again. he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, amen, amen. A most emphatic statement one that can be trusted, that's ironclad, it's sealed, it's the most secure thing that I can be said. Quite literally, Jesus saying, I am. The one who's the keeper of truth is making a valid, infallible statement. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, how can this be? Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Quite a crass statement. But what's happening here is, again, the the, the Pharisees are about the Gentiles being born again and coming into this faith. And here Jesus is saying, you, teacher of Israel, must be born again. And the Greek there can be translated two different ways. And so it's obvious that Nicodemus can't understand what Jesus is saying. So he assumes the first. To be born again, this earthly birth, 
an earthly rebirth. Well, how can that be? I can't go back up my mom's womb. But what Jesus is saying is the second translation of it is you must be born from above. And to be born from above is not contingent upon who you are, Nicodemus. It's not contingent upon how learned you are. It's not contingent upon how well you're received by people. It's not contingent upon your pedigree. It's not contingent upon your socioeconomic status. It's something altogether different, Nicodemus. And for Nicodemus, this is an unfathomable statement that Jesus is saying. To be born again. Essentially, Nicodemus, it's a fundamental and permanent revolution of thinking and feeling and acting. And Nicodemus rightly responds, how can this be? And Jesus answers in verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In verse 9, Nicodemus said, how can this be? The second question. It's a confusing passage. Some would say, what is Jesus talking about with water and spirit? Perhaps water points to baptism, which as we finish chapter 3 in the coming weeks, we'll see that the theme of baptism comes back in. And we've seen before that we see John's baptism happening, so maybe there's something distinct with Jesus' baptism. But what I think is actually happening here is that Jesus the rabbi is quickening the teacher to recall the prophet Ezekiel. He's quickening to remembrance these words, and there's some wordplay happening what Jesus says. Spirit, wind, breath are all the same word in Greek and Hebrew. So he's talking about the spirit of God and spirit wind. It's why he introduces the idea of wind into the conversation. And as he quickens Nicodemus' mind to Ezekiel, this is what it reads. You can have it on the screens if you like to follow. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. As he talks about water and a cleansing in this new birth, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put within you. And I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall know and be my people and I will be your God. Nicodemus, to be born again is an act of the spirit. And in this act and in this rebirth, your heart of stone is now a heart of flesh. It's placed in you, and you're cleansed, and you see new jump off the page, new, new, new. 
I've come to do something new. How can this be? Jesus keeps drawing his attention to Ezekiel, a long passage, but follow along as he talks of the wind. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, that there was very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath or spirit to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath or spirit in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there was sinews on them and flesh had come on them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath or spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breath on these slain that they, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath of spirit came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Stay with me, okay? It's a lot. He said to me, son of man, you ready? These bones are the whole house of Israel. Nicodemus, these bones are the whole house of Israel. New birth has to come through the Spirit, through water, through cleansing, an act of the Spirit. Behold and say to them, O bones are dried up and all hope is lost. We are cut off indeed. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel that you shall know that I am the Lord and I will open your graves and raise you from the graves of my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and you will live in the place of your land, that you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, how can it be? Well, remember the words of Ezekiel, that a water is to come and cleanse. It's initiated by the Spirit, and you get a new heart. Your old heart is exchanged. And the bones, this house of Israel is dead, but the Son of Man has come to bring life through the Spirit. It's not about your pedigree. It's not that you're a descendant of Abraham. Your lineage, your flesh cannot save you. It's an act of the Spirit, and just as the wind blows, we can't map out the movement of the wind. Now we can, a little bit. But we can't map out what the Spirit does. And as the wind does, so the Spirit does. 
In verse 7, when he says, do not marvel that you, what's beautiful about what Jesus does there is in the Greek, he, you shifts to plural. He's no longer talking to just Nicodemus. He's talking to all of Israel and eventually the world. Don't marvel that I say to you, Israel, be born again. You know you thought that was just for Gentile, but I'm saying it's for you. How can this be? Verse 10. You with me so far? It's a lot, yeah? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Sometimes I've read that in the past and thought, Jesus is just like nailing the guy. But I think what's probably true to Jesus' character and heart is that he's saying, Nicodemus, I love you. I made you. Before the foundations of the earth, I thought of you. For centuries, I brought prophets to prophesy that one day the house of Israel would rise again and have life. These valley of dry bones would be met with the Spirit and new birth would happen. I love you. Don't you understand these things? Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. We speak of the things we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, plural, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, plural, earthly things, and you, plural, do not believe, how can you, plural, believe if I tell you, plural, heavenly? Again, to Israel. I'm telling you earthly things and you don't understand. How will you ever understand these heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven. A bold statement that he says to this teacher of Israel. Except he who descended from heaven. The word was with God and the word was God and he took up residence in the neighborhood. God made flesh. Has descended into heaven. The son of man. The Son of Man, a prophetic statement acknowledging the Messiah, and Jesus in this moment is saying, I'm Him. And what's baffling for Nicodemus is that Son of Man is a future tense. Like, it's, it's, it's supposed to happen in the future, and what Jesus is saying is, the future has been brought into the present. The cleansing that you were longing for is here. The judge that you assumed was coming is here. The glory that was awaiting is here and now, and yet somehow to come. You'll notice that Nicodemus has no more questions. It's not in the text, but imagine it's just like jaw drop. What did he just say? I'm a Jew. This whole time I thought that it secured who I was in the kingdom. And now Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah that was to come, is now here the future meets the present and is telling me and the whole of Israel that we are to be born again. And it's not about our own efforts, but it's about the act of the Spirit. And we can't determine how he does it because the Spirit moves in the same way as the wind does. Silence. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's a second reference to Moses. We'll see Moses in chapter one. We see that as we're talking about the word becomes flesh, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, dwelling among us, tabernacling among his people. We see that Moses is a redeeming character. He's a a figure that he rescues Egypt out of Israel. He brings rescue and relief to the people. 
And yet John says that there's a, a Moses, there's a better Moses that's going to come, and he's going to come in grace and truth. And we see another parallel to Moses in what is one of the most bizarre stories in Scripture. I don't know if as parents or as kids you heard this, but we always told our kids when we'd feed our kids, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Anybody else? Or you get what you get and you thank God for it. This is the ultimate you get what you get and you don't throw a fit stories found in Numbers 21. Israel, rescued out of Egypt, is now eating food that's falling from the sky, fresh, daily. Manna, it's like Krispy Kreme donuts. They don't know what it is. It's just this sweet, like beautiful, glorious thing. Falls apart in the mouth. And God's provision every day. And yet, in Numbers 21, we find out that Israel loathes and is over it. They say, this food sucks. And we're tired of it. We want to go back to Egypt, which is a baffling statement. You want to go back to slavery and persecution and degradation just because the food was better? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So here's what God does. He sends fiery serpents. You don't like your food? Fiery serpents. (laughs) Fiery serpents come and start biting Israel. And they're dying. And they're crying out and then eventually they repent. And the word repent just means this. I was going this way. I hate my food. I go this way. God, your provision's amazing. And they prayed to God, God, save us. And so God tells Moses to do perhaps the most bizarre remedy you could think of. Not go gather medicine over there in the corner and distribute it to everybody and do it in an orderly fashion. Not just miraculously take them away, but he says, go take bronze and make a snake and put it on a pole. What? Yeah, and then just go outside after that's done and tell everybody, look and live. Uh, okay. Israel, all those who look to this will be saved. Done. Better. Healed. A bizarre remedy to say the least. It's not obvious. None of us with our best minds would ever come up with that idea. It's not rational. And it's open to skepticism, no doubt. You don't think there was Israelites going, are you kidding, Moses? We're busy. We're scrounging for medicine and sucking on each other's bites to get the poison out. And Jesus says, just like that, that's what needs to happen with me. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and all who look will be saved. As man was dying from the fiery serpent, now the Son of Man must die. As the poison was going into the body, and the remedy was to look and be saved. Look to Jesus, the Son of Man, to be saved from the sting of sin and death. And what a bizarre remedy that was. That Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, and what good can come from Nazareth, would be God's son. And what a bizarre remedy that God would crush his only begotten son so that life could come. And what a bizarre remedy that Rome isn't overthrown 
yet still in power at the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. And yet the power and mastery of death and sin have been defeated. It's not logical, it's not rational, it's not obvious. Seacoast, Nicodemus, look to the sun and live. Isaiah 45, 2 would say, look to me and be saved. And no doubt, the great teacher Nicodemus heard these words and it shook him to his core. Now with all that, for God so loved the world. His mission was one of love. His message was for the world, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile and Jew. He gave his only son costly gift to give his one and only. That whoever would believe to look to him and be saved in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was about salvation, not condemnation. And it's interesting how this message can be distorted to be anything but. We wrap our account on Nicodemus for now. The three observations that I just want to call our attention to. The first is this. There's an invitation to be curious. Never is Nicodemus demeaned or disregarded for his questions. Much of what Jesus said was so countercultural to him. So hard to put together, though all the pieces were right in front of him. The processing of such wonder was too much to take in, to sit in the presence of the Son of Man. At Seacoast, one of our values is we love the spiritually curious. And oftentimes we think of that as a person who has yet to place their faith and confidence in Jesus. And that's true. If that's you here this morning and you're exploring the things of faith, I just want to say we're so glad you're here. You are welcome to come with your questions, your doubts, your curiosity. It's welcomed here. Your skepticism is welcome here. As you wrestle through these messages and these strange things, we're glad you're here. For those who are in Christ this morning, the invitation to curiosity extends to you and I. May we constantly be theologians, literally students of God, studying him, learning, curious about how that applies to our life, the way we live and work and think and play that we would be informed by this new birth that's been given to us. An invitation to curiosity. Second is this, is that there's an invitation to new life. For the believer in this room this morning, sometimes this passage about being born again gets mishandled. 
And it sounds like a leveling up to something above repenting and putting faith in Christ. Are you born again? What I would say is this. There's no such thing as an unregenerate Christian. It's an oxymoron. If you've repented of sin and trusted and looked to the Son to remove stain, you are new. and You are his. And life is new. You've been given a new identity, a new reality, a new paradigm to think through. And it's all received and not achieved. So lay down the burden of trying to keep law and follow and level up and rest in the finished work of the Son of Man. Rest in the security of Him. For those who have yet to repent and believe and look to the Son to be saved, I'd invite you to take that step forward this morning. I invite you to trust that He is the sufficiency for all of life. I invite you to trust that He is who He says He was, that His way of life is better than what you're doing now. Even on my worst day of following Jesus, it's better than my best day of not following him. Of all the accoutrements of life, of all the accolades of life, nothing compares to being known, being new, and being reborn in Jesus. So an invitation to new life. And finally, as the worship team comes up, an invitation to extravagant worship. What I love about the narrative of Nicodemus is that we don't, just stop seeing Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. We see him a few chapters later as becoming a curious person to becoming an advocator for Jesus. In front of his peers, he says, shouldn't we be giving Jesus a fair trial when they're trying to falsely entrap him and ensnare him and crucify him? He stands up and does the unthinkable and says, whoa, 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 guys, slow your horses. And in John 19, perhaps one of my favorite things this week, again, my wife and I were tearing up in bed thinking about it the, last night. Nicodemus is found at the scene of the cross. As the Son of God is beaten and marred and rejected and despised by his own creation. And he's hung on a cross like a criminal and beaten beyond recognition and scoffed at and spit upon as he takes his final breath and says, it's finished. It's my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. We find the skeptical and the spectacle has dispersed. And yet Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are found asking for the body of Jesus. And they go by night in quiet to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus criminal from Nazareth who no one would in their right mind want to be surrounded by including his own disciples who have dispersed and yet here are these two rich rulers handling the body of Jesus what's beautiful about this is that it's Passover Nicodemus would be sitting at tables of honor and being lawed after, oh, teacher, tell us the story of Passover. And yet he's nowhere to be found, and in fact, he'd be, he's made himself, along with Joseph, to be unclean. 
because of handling this dead body, which now means that they've been rejected into being able to be in fellowship around the table with one another. It's an act as if to say, we're celebrating and longing for the Passover lamb, and here he is, the Passover lamb. We found him. Where's everybody at? He's here. they subject themselves as slaves and servants to do the task that was so menial that they would prepare the body to be laid of Jesus. And they give him a king's burial in a new tomb that would have never gone to this criminal from Nazareth. And they place his body in there and Nicodemus lavishes the body of Jesus. With 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, an extravagant act of worship to lavish the body of Jesus, to lay there and to seal the tomb. And that's where we end with Nicodemus. An invitation to us, church, as God so freely gave and so lavishly gave, for those in Christ, we respond accordingly and love in the way that he has loved us. We give of ourselves in such a way that he's given, freely, unrestrained, so extravagantly that nothing could compare to the sacrifice that Jesus has given. An invitation to come and see that we've looked and seen and he is who he said he was. And we found new life and freedom that we never knew could exist. It was for freedom's sake that he gave freedom. And in freedom in our newness that was gifted and received, not achieved, we respond accordingly and say, the Son of Man, we look to you. The Son of Man, we've been born again because you, by the act of the Spirit, has made us new. So we worship you. There's none more worthy than you. And so Sikos, I want us to do that today in practice. Would you stand with us? We're going to respond to the one. And would you look to him today to be saved? So glad the story doesn't stop at the death and burial of Jesus. Three days later, he rises in power, in triumph. The sting of death and sin is gone, defeated, and that new life is offered to us, generation after generation. The gift of the Son of Man. If you've never made that decision, I would love to meet you right here and talk to you about that today. If you've never placed your confidence in him, repented of sin and put your faith in him. I'd love to have that conversation as Jesus had with Nicodemus. But now as we go, church, to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, to him be the honor, the glory, and power forevermore. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. Hope you have a great weekend. Go say hello to somebody out there on the plaza. Hope to see you next week.